Hello and welcome to Super Urbanism. My name is Tim Abrahams. This podcast, as you may know, is produced by Machine Books. Machine Books are an excellent publisher working in the built environment, and I should know because I helped set it up. In this episode, we are looking at one of the company's most recently published works, Play the Game. Now, Play the Game is a timely book which describes, in the words of those but there, how the 2012 Olympics came to East London and how their ambitions are finally being realised. I say it's timely, nearly 11 years after the event, because it's only now that we are really understanding what the word legacy that was much used in the build-up to the Games to refer to what the Olympic Park would become actually means. University College London just opened up there, 11 years later. As we will hear, it took a long time for the word to be understood. The text of Play the Game has been woven from interviews with key figures involved in delivering the Olympics. And it's been done by Mick Owen and Rafe Ward, two experts in the field of planning in London, and who have both had roles in the planning delivery themselves. Mick and Rafe are old hands in the development world in London, known for their events and their network. So, to celebrate the launch of Play the Game, they organised a tour of the Olympic Park and invited a number of figures who they had interviewed for the book and who were deeply involved in the planning of the event and its legacy. You will hear from them, and others, because they invited us as well. First, let's hear from Rafe Ward, one of the authors of the book, as he gives his introduction to Stratford, in East London itself. Shortly after I joined the Government Office for London, the permanent secretary came over to look at the government office to explore what was going on. And my boss, who was an incredible guy called John Shinkevich, gave him this tour de force presentation about Stratford and how we were talking to the Treasury about getting a channel tunnel rail link through Stratford and talking to developers who might build a huge new development. And I could see the permanent secretary's eyes glazing over. And he said, do I know Stratford? And then he said, ah, oh, yes, it's that awful place on the edge of London where I come through every morning on my trip into work from Colchester. And that just about summed it up. And yet within 10 years, not only have we had the Channel Tunnel Rail Link being developed and Stratford City, we've been blessed by Olympic legacy. And nobody knew really what that meant. We were going to have an Olympic legacy it was going to do stuff, but nobody really knew. What it should have meant is that we're going to create new space for new business expansion, innovation. It should have meant we're going to create opportunities in new businesses for local people and local young people in particular who found unable to penetrate the kind of cliff face of establishment London. And what it should have meant is that we brought some of these central London cultural institutions kicking and screaming <coughs> over the River Lee for the very first time in the history of London. And the extraordinary thing is, is that's actually what has happened. Rafe's co-author Mick Owens describes the new area of cultural institutions and significant architecture at the gateway to the park. There's the, the V&A East and, and Sadler's Wells and Sahar Hadid's gorgeous aquatic centre over there. And we forget the Fridge Mountain. We forget the Hackney Dog Track. We forget the illegal raves and warehouses. The psychogeographers love what used to be. 
don't they? And we forget it all because it seems so legible to us now and seems uh, so coherent. It's very easy to think of the park as something that emerged from nothing. But that would be to forget what an utterly unprecedented place the Lower Lee Valley was. It was a huge swathe of land that had been used for industrial purposes and then abandoned, used and abused. Of course, there was delight in that abandonment. But it severed the city from its eastern half. It was accessible, but only to the most intrepid. It was full of wreckers' yards and piles of scrap. To knit the city back together was no small task. It was fought and struggled for. None more so than by Richard Sumray, a.k.a. John the Baptist, who knew London Mayor Ken Livingston very well. This was the one, the place that I wanted it really to be. And I felt that if it could be here, then we could shift the centre of gravity of London, we could regenerate a part of the city, which is what, in my view, the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games really needs to be able to do. So it's much, much more than about sport. It's about changing society, the change in the way we look at it, changing the cities. Barcelona was a good example of how that potentially could be done. I knew Ken from years before. I'd been one of his agents in in an election, so I'd known him for many years. And I knew that he had no interest in sport whatsoever. But what he had a huge interest in was what it could do. And therefore, having it in this part of London made absolute sense to him. And this was where it was best placed. And the rest is history. <laughs> Rafe tells us yeah. that we I have just, to I move on. I just want to make one of my usual throwaway dystopian comments. Whenever I come here, people look at the uh, Ansel or Mutual Town and say, what was that for? And I realise what it is now. It's a, it's a memorial to the old fridge mountains and scrapyards <laughs> that used to occupy this area. And it's a very effective one too, I think. Actually. So we're going to go to Carpenter's Lock next, yeah? Yeah, uh, yeah from the cool. Carpenter's Lock. Okay, let's press on. This is my favorite bit. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. This is a lovely boulevard, yeah. trees, lovely light on cables, globe lighting, wandering down by the river. There's some swan pedalos over there. My goodness me. This is, this is what it was about really, isn't it? Because it is really important to remember that despite some of the criticisms that the Olympic Park didn't deliver the amount of housing that East London needed, it did do something else. It did create a place, a core, a centre, a park somewhere in East London around which other activities could be placed. It's a place where different institutions, different businesses can come set up and provide another centre and core to the city. How that happened and the thinking that was required are very interesting. We're about to hear from Eleanor Fawcett, who was head of design at the Olympic Legacy from 2003 all the way up to delivery. I was the head of design for the Olympic Legacy from 2003, basically, when we started to put the bid together and I was working on what we would release when we lost the games, which was always the plan, and then continued on throughout the project. And this bit of the park was a particular focus when just after the LLDC was set up and when Andy Altman was the chief exec at the time, so 2010-2011, like right in the run-up to the games, the transformation plans, which was basically what the ODA was going to hand us in 2014 after they'd taken the temporary stuff away, I kid you not, this whole area all around the stadium was tarmac. 
literally tarmac with this orbit sticking out in the middle of it and they were releasing all these images da da this is what you're going to get and it didn't take a lot of expertise to figure out that no one was going to want to come there because it's a beautiful day today but 90% of the time it's windswept here quite a sort of harsh environment I led the process with a firm based in New York who had put the case together for the Highline to basically make the case to central government that we needed a further 30 million of funding to pay for this landscaping to be there on day one because if it was opened in the way that was proposed we would then have this situation of decline and failure that we would then have to spend even more money and make even more disruption to turn it around because imagine adding all of this after the park had opened um, that was also linked to trying to understand why people would come here. And everybody was very focused on it as like a destination for tourists, obviously with the international sporting events. But what we really made the case for, I think, I feel quite validated being here today, is that the first thing we had to do was create a place where day in, day out, local people would come. Because no tourist wants to come and sit in a bleak environment. You want that rhythm of busyness, just that buzz that you can people watch. And then you get the programming and the events, and then you get the international tourists. It had to be in that order. And so that's why play was so important, and that's why all the nooks and crannies, this was meant to be a sort of performance-type space and so on. And one of our tests, I had all these little secret KPIs of kind of how I would know that it had been a success. And we had things like a place you'd come for a first date, um, a place where you do a children's birthday party you know it's safe you know it's pleasant even if nothing's planned you know that you'll have a nice time and so that promenade was always our first date promenade <laughs> um, so it's very 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 different from how it was um, originally planned by the Olympic project which I think a lot of people forget the nuance in all of that was the memory of how the Lee Valley was and this feeling of it being a slightly anarchistic environment where people that people could find their place that wasn't completely mainstream and we tried to keep that sense particularly in the North Park where it wasn't all sterile and it wasn't all about the grand promenade it had some of that secret wild quality too. Richard Sumray again. I think what we did here in respect of the greenery in respect of just doing something which was going to be attractive to local people and you can absolutely feel that today. It's something that has not happened in any other games that I have seen and the legacy from them. And I think the particular example I want to give you is Sydney, which was a fantastic Games, but it took them years and years and years to have any kind of legacy plan, and it's still barren. So a really fantastic job done. Mick and Rafe then took us to the north of the park, the large group spanning out behind them. And there the contours start to change, things become different. We seem to have layers upon layers. The city as we remembered it has not been forgotten. We take a step down by the banks of the Lee and remember the place as it really was. This bit had really steep banks and it really had this sort of serene, very natural countryside feel. When we did the bid, were very much all about introducing lots of new basins and ponds 
and making them super activated. And you have to also remember that the, the whole rhetoric around why we were getting the Olympics had a lot to do with how crap the place was now. And everyone was quite bought into it's a really like absolutely dire place and we just need to do everything we can to erase that. And I remember everyone would roll their eyes when I would talk in the meetings with Edor at the time and Alice Morrison and that whole team that then got replaced because I would always say, what about that special quality that's there today? Like how can we somehow retain a, just, just a little bit of that but without all the dodgy taking your life in your own hands kind of aspects? And eventually we had this breakthrough because we never knew how to deal with the actual higher level of the walkways and the low level of the water. And there was this moment when it was agreed that actually it was okay to keep them separate and to have this two level landscape. And you didn't need to have grand paths somehow making it all one. And I think that was the thing that unlocked it because it meant that lower level could do its own thing. It's lovely being here today because it, the wildlife has already come back. There's kingfishers and swans and you can see it's not very manicured, but I can recognise it and I'm sure those of you that knew it then know what I mean by that. But the other thing that actually worked really well during the games, for those of you that remember, was all those funny sort of teardrop-shaped lawns like down at that lower level they had that screen in the middle of the water and every and they were so successful and it was people like loved that feeling of being in nature watching the games so i think although it was a very painful journey of like how to square the circle and make it new but also keep the wildness i do feel it's good that we didn't give up and that we just kept doing it the oda absolutely freaking hated us by the end <laughs> because the landscape works was so out of kilter with the rest of the program because we kept liking and redesigning it but I think it was worth it in the end. Of course the London Olympics wasn't simply an act of building it wasn't simply an aesthetic event it wasn't simply about changing the way a certain part of London looked it was a political and a social event as we've already alluded to. Now when we discuss politics we need to consider who were the end beneficiaries. Did it influence and give to the people of London in the way that Ken Livingstone wanted it to? Or did it influence and affect better those who made it? There has to be a naysayer here, and who better than the following? My name's Aditya Chakraborty and I'm Senior Economics Commentator at The Guardian. I went to school in Hackney, I went to school in Clapton, in the era in which it was there was murder mile. But you always wonder, yep, how many of the people who lived in Hackney Wick still there? And how many of those artists and groovy looking people who are there now, how, how long would it? And I think the answers that come in are not necessarily so, so encouraging. One of the issues with the Olympics is that it is very difficult to measure and quantify success because the terms of success constantly change. Is the Olympics designed simply to produce quality housing for the largest number of people? Or is it designed to do something more complex, more different? The aspiration of the people involved was to make something that benefited and produced a better city. It's always worth considering what the city could have been without it, or indeed what could have happened to the city 
had it not been controlled and directed in the correct way. Eleanor Fawcett again. So the conversation earlier about how people feel about what's happened here, I think has to be couched in terms of what almost happened here. It was before the Elder Thames Gateway Development Corporation had been likely set up. No, no one had their eye on the ball and there was just a lot of industrial landowners made a lot of money very quickly and retired to wherever and the rest of us were slightly left to pick up the pieces with a bit of embarrassment having promised this amazing legacy and all we got were the most cynical tower blocks that you've ever seen. And that wave was coming to Hackney Wick and actually I was looking for them before I came but I do have images of the early pre-apps for actually worse schemes than what was going up on Stratford High Street and everyone was like oh wicked okay this is the next frontier and in particular everything was going to be completely cleared and there was going to be more big stupid land bridges and stuff that was never going to happen. I remember there was going to be a huge um, uh, sort of Trafalgar Square sized bus interchange here I seem to remember. Anyway and as a result the LTGDC started buying sites so the sites that we just walked past these and this were bought by the LTGDC and then handed to LLDC when they were wrapped up. We started working on one for um, Hackneywick and Fish Island and there was this funny moment where I was saying I've heard that there's some artists here, I'm not really too sure exactly what and the boroughs said oh yeah there's a few but they're basically all illegal don't worry about them they'll be gone and so I commissioned this piece of work that I got Muff Architects to do where they documented the number of artists and they discovered there was something like 512 studios with up to five artists in each including seven royal academicians and it was I swear overnight all of a sudden the boroughs were like well of course the artists are at the centre of our vision for this area and it's essential that we find a way of keeping them but the the serendipity was that was in summer 2008 the financial crash basically saved Hackney Wick because all of the pre-apps they knew they couldn't get them away before the games so we basically bought ourselves five years where no developments would then really start coming forward until after the games so we had five years to get to grips with what it meant to have this community and also the kind of character of it. So during that period, and I was at LLDC at this point, we declared two new conservation areas, which was like pretty, you know, radical when you came here because it was really about controlling the quality of what replaced it rather than preventing new things from happening. And we documented very thoroughly the creative and business community and put in place all of these policies to do with retaining the rents as they were in the new build. So the discussion about, you know, are any of them still there and all the rest of it. The thing that we didn't do in my opinion, was have a proper on-the-ground, wheeler-dealer, inward investment type person that we were pushing for for years. Because actually what happened was the artists at the time, once their buildings started to get knocked down, there was nobody to do a proper decant strategy and keep people in the area. So a lot of them moved up to... Waltham Forest or Enfield, Loan Twice. And so it is true to say that a lot of those artists did leave, not all of them, but the, the fact that we secured through the policies that we put in place the provision of workspace at very low rents does, I hope, mean that that character, you know, 
they, the developers basically have to fill the spaces and the LRDC are working on how to make that as impactful and as successful as possible. I really critique it when I walk around and like, did we create a bit of a monster? Has this really worked? But I think it's too early to say, to be honest. And the fact that we got the funding to do the station and we did a lot of the heavy lifting and now it's really down to the market yeah. to flow it through and see if ultimately it ends up but you can say for sure it's not Stratford High Street. So I think we did achieve something. <laughs> One of the things that was so great on the tour was learning these alternative possible scenarios, the ones which the people making and developing the plans for the park were dealing with, the what-ifs. I also think that what I enjoyed so much about the tour and also about the book, Play the Game, by Michael Owens and Rafe Ward, published by Machine Books, you can go to www.machinebooks.co.uk to find out more about it, is that it gives an insight into the decision-making that occurred and also to understand just quite what a massive leap it was for this area which had been totally disregarded as the edges of five different local authority sites suddenly being forced to think of itself as a cohesive whole. And that opportunity which the Olympics provides is so important the administrative aspect. One of my favourite little nuggets about the Olympics is that before 1964, Tokyo didn't have a unitary sewage authority. I mean, it's ridiculous, of course. You can't just have an Olympic event just to make people who should be talking about human waste talking about it. But this is the inevitable way that cities evolve. It segregates and separates and fragments and becomes incoherent. And one of the things that the Olympics does is bring people together with a sense of, shall we say, jeopardy and encourages them to dedicate themselves to a single task. And there were so many of these. And if you get the book, which you really recommend you do, you'll be able to see these people taking responsibility for this fragmentation, people bringing the city together. And that was my abiding memory of the trip. My name is Nina Radford. Um, I work for the London Development Agency as the Head of Regeneration for the Lower Lee Valley and oversaw the completion of the Opportunity Area Planning Framework. The councils insisted that there was some legacy context to the Olympic planning application. They said we can't just approve a planning application for a two-week event. You need to show us what land uses are going where afterwards, even if it's just indicative. So we had to really push this one through and get the local councils to agree to a set of development projections and the thing that I recall it wasn't the housing numbers that were difficult to agree it was things like the social infrastructure and in particular where the schools would go and some of them the idea that you could have a school that served more than one borough that was on the boundary was was particularly difficult but we just didn't have enough land really to give everybody their own individual ones that was those were the tricky things and anyway once we'd got this thing through and it was published a little group of us that worked on it came and had a walk around on a hot day, much like today, and we climbed down that ladder there, the bottle of champagne, um, and we all went down there and popped open a bottle of champagne and put the Lower Lee Valley framework on a little boat and <laughs> sailed it down the we, river. So this was where the Lower Lee plan was launched. <laughs> and Excellent. it's got to be said, right, because this is a good moment to say it, but Nina had the brain it would not have been possible to get all of the players to sign up to this thing if it had not been for the work that you were doing. 
What I love about Play the Game by Mick Owens and Rafe Ward is that it captures loads of conversations like these in which the normal people, albeit the people who are professional planners and deliverers of infrastructure, have their say and, and explain the role that they played in the delivering of the games. They give you some insight into what it's like when there are these directional large-scale infrastructure projects coming in over them and they're involved in it. And you think that they're going to be describing it in terms of despair. There's a very funny section of the book where people describe seeing the looks on faces of senior figures involved in the Olympic delivery winning the Games and they are absolutely devastated by this fact because it means such a huge amount of work. But then you also get into the idea that there's a collective activity here and people are very proud of the work they've done very crazy work people buying dog stadiums with money that they don't actually have spending billions on burying pylons creating systems for compulsory purchase which have never been seen before others who hold out certain owners holding out for huge vast payouts a game of difficult problematic choices but one which has actually led to something worthwhile I know that there are certain people who will say it has not delivered what it said it would deliver. It's not created what it said it would create. It's still early days, though. It's only 11 years since it happened. These things take decades and decades, and it's changing in front of our very eyes. I'm looking forward to going to see the um, University College London campus there. I can't wait for the Victorian Albert Museum East Outpost to open, Sadler's Wells. What happens then to the wider area is that ambition of the open institution that the East London can provide. Is that at least going to be valid and worthwhile for the next 20 years? Well, can we can we look to seeing employment for the people of East London through these institutions? That's when it becomes really interesting. Anyway, play the game, how the Olympics came to East London is available at www.machinebooks.co.uk If you go to the shop there, you can buy it for, oh, I don't know, it's about £15, I think. It's worth your while. Anyone interested in large-scale infrastructure, architecture, planning, urbanism, landscape gardening, landscape urbanism, whatever you want to call it, it's all in there. Do let us know what you think of it. We're on Twitter, machine underscore books. We're also available on Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you leave your opinions, leave one with us. We're interested to hear what you have to say. Also, anything you have to say about the podcast, please do. This was, by definition, a kind of overview of a larger book, a kind of just some little hints of a three-hour talk, which Mick and Rafe ran last month. So it's just a snippet, but I've enjoyed delivering it for you. Next week, we're going to be talking to another institution, from the East End of London, Mr. Will Wiles. Thank you very much. Speak to you next week. This was a Machine Books podcast. It was presented by Mr. Tim Abrahams. It was produced by Miss Lucy Ditchment. Please look out for more from us at www.machinebooks.co.uk.